Welcome to Community Hope Podcast. We pray that the Word of Christ would dwell in you richly as you listen and that you would be encouraged in Christ. Will you pray with me? Lord, I pray for our hearts. I pray that you would open our eyes to your Word and to our lives and that your Word would be a seed that would be watered and grow in our hearts and in our minds. Jesus, I ask this in your name. Amen. So we're continuing our series. Oh, by the way, I am alive after hiking with the youth, right? Yeah. And uh, we're continuing our series uh, in the parables. And this parable is actually a salvational issue uh, because... He says, he also told this parable to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So this would take us out of the kingdom unless we find our righteousness in Jesus Christ, right? If we tend to find it in ourselves, we're we're not in. The trouble is, is we at least me, we're always seeking to try to find our righteousness in other places, aren't we? I mean, in Jesus' day, they had this problem that we don't have today anymore. Some people would define themselves by their external performance, and it caused them to look down their noses on others. It's a good thing that doesn't happen today, right? Right? You know, think, we've grown a lot in 2,000 years. And I think what the problem is, is that um, in Seculosity, the author said this. He said, um, he quoted T.S. Eliot, half the harm that is done in the world is by people who are absorbed in the endless struggle to think well of themselves. Or somebody much older than T.S. Eliot, Blaise Pascal said, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every man, woman, child, which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God the Creator, made known through Jesus Christ. And here's the trouble. We, we walk around with this void and vacuum, and we're always trying to fill it, right? This story will go on with a guy who tried to fill it with his performance, but it doesn't matter. We're always trying to fill it. Some years ago, uh, Madonna had an interview in Vanity Fair, and frankly, she's pretty wise. She had a under, better understanding of herself than most people do today. She said, all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. I'm always struggling with that fear. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, and then I get to another stage and I think I'm mediocre and uninteresting and I find a way to get myself out of that again and again. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre and that's always pushing me and pushing me because even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended and it probably never will. This is that void, right? It's that it's that thing, that hole in our hearts, and we're trying to put our performance in it, but what she's learned is it doesn't last, does it? How many people have romantic love, and they look for this soulmate, always, always saying, if I can just find the right person, then I'll be fully satisfied, and what they're looking for is a savior, isn't it? 
They're saying, you rescue me from this void inside my life. And what happens is they get married and they start saying, I'm not happy and it's your problem. And you know the funny thing is, is some people will say, yes, it must be me. My job is to make you happy, right? And that's the recipe for a very unhappy marriage, right? But the trouble is still the heart. If it's not my performance, it's somebody else's performance for me, right? And trying to save each other, it's crazy. In Seculosity, David Zoll said this. He said, especially as a young parent, I would see codes of behavior, people clinging to something that's righteous. There's an orthodox way and almost a heretical way of raising children. So he's saying that sometimes we actually look at our kids' performance as a way of finding our enoughness or our righteousness and, and, and how we raise these children. And he said people were constantly at war with each other. You would see a parent at a playground correcting a perfect stranger. And, and now they call them Karens. And, and it felt to me like what you would see sometimes at a church event. He said, so I saw all the young parents around me always get anxious, like they were being graded all the time. Yeah, this kind of void, and we try to fill it, and we try to live by our performance, our performance as parents or our kids' performance, and we're always under the grade and all the anxiety it causes, and, and even, uh, even busyness, right? I, I know COVID kind of like quelled this, but there's something about if I'm needed, if I'm wanted, if I'm always doing something, I am a person of value, right? I have value. It's that same kind of thing. And I was thinking about this. Here's a picture of us hiking. Um, <clears throat> a lot of times we put ourselves into our abilities, right? I am my body image. I am my performance. Can I tell you, is there anybody but one guy over 50 in that group, right? <laughs> right? So the guy over 50 could go, look, I still got it, right? That's the same trap as everything else, isn't it, right? It's, it's just putting your, your, how you feel about yourself based on your performance. And even partyism, right? You know, how many times did we see, you know, oh, I am the party I identify with. And all of a sudden, we start judging other people. We start looking down on other people because somehow we see ourselves as better than them. I like this. People these days are so judgmental, I can just tell by looking at them, right? <laughs> you, now, here's the deal. I struggle with this. I become judgmental of judgmental people, right? right? And who am I then? I am the person that I don't like. Right? It's crazy. I, I have to say, how many times do you go to wonder instead of judgment? I wonder what's going on in their life. I wonder what they're thinking about. I wonder what makes them think that way. I wonder what's... Do, does that make sense? The funny thing about judgment is that we don't have the same mind, the same life experience that that other person has. Right? I mean, I try to remind myself, wait, what is it like to be in their brain? What is it like to live in their head? Because in my head, that might be easy, but in their head, it might be a totally different story. And instead of going to judgment, go to wonder. I wonder what it's like. 
Or I wonder what it was like growing up in that household, right? How difficult was the parenting situation, right? You start going to wonder because I think C.S. Lewis said something like, for somebody who's been raised and praised for unkindness and meanness and cruelty, for them to hold back, for them to um, not act in a cruel way in some small fashion might be as difficult as somebody giving their life for somebody else. Does that make sense? Because God sees our hearts and our minds, and we tend to go to judgment because they, they, we think, oh, they must be like me. They have their brain. It's like when Billy was trying to teach me how to play the drums, and he looks at me at the end of it, and he goes, how do you even play guitar, right? <laughs> And I say, I don't know, but I can't hit, I can't do it. Right, okay, so uh, what's the problem and how do we find a solution? Well, Jesus goes into a parable for this problem. And he says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. Now for us, we've been around this for a while, we go Pharisee, bad guy, tax collector, good guy, but not them. Listening to this story, Pharisees were the generous people. They were the holy people. They were the religious people. They didn't have a bad rap. They didn't have television telling them that, that all Christian pastors are weirdo, strange, and, you know, like, they didn't have that. They thought Pharisees were good, and they thought tax collectors were wicked, right? They, tax collectors were like, um, imagine North Korea came and took over America, and they levied a huge tax on every American. And certain Americans said, I'll be the one to collect the tax. How would you feel about that person? Right? Or how would you feel about a corporate raider you retired a year ago, and they came in, took the company, and took your retirement away? That's the tax collector right there. And they, they did not like them. They hated them. They despised them. They were collaborators with the Roman occupiers. And it says, then the Pharisee standing by himself. And I started thinking how when I'm judgmental, I am not compassionate. I'm not empathetic. I don't get up close to people. What I do is I stand afar, right? I'm not very helpful or I'm fake, right? And this Pharisee is is a part. His judgmentalism is, is keeping him away from people. And my mind went to this video on empathy. A couple, oh, maybe a month ago, Kashif was here, and we're talking, and he goes, you know, he's, he's getting better at English. So he goes, what's the difference between sympathy and empathy? So I told him that, and then later I sent him this video. And I was thinking, man, we in the church need to be empathetic that Pharisee was not empathetic, but there's something healing about empathy. So what is empathy, and why is it very different than sympathy? Empathy fuels connection. Sympathy drives disconnection. Empathy, it's very interesting. Teresa Wiseman is a nursing scholar who studied professions, very diverse professions, where empathy is relevant, and came up with four qualities of empathy. Perspective-taking, the ability to take the perspective of another person or, or recognize their perspective as their truth. Staying out of judgment, not easy when you enjoy it as much as most of us do. <laughs> Recognizing emotion in other people and then communicating that. Empathy is feeling with people. And to me, I always think of empathy as this kind of sacred space 
when someone's kind of in a deep hole and they shout out from the bottom and they say, I'm stuck, it's dark, I'm overwhelmed. And then we look and we say, hey, climb down. I know what it's like down here and you're not alone. Sympathy is, ooh, (laughs) it's bad, uh uh-huh. No, you want a sandwich? Empathy is a choice and it's a vulnerable choice because in order to connect with you, I have to connect with something in myself that knows that feeling. Rarely, if ever, does an empathic response begin with at least. I had a, yeah. And we do it all the time because you know what? Someone just shared something with us that's incredibly painful and we're trying to silver lining it. I don't think that's a verb, but I'm using it as one. We're trying to put the silver lining around it. So I had a miscarriage. At least you know you can get pregnant. I think my marriage is falling apart. At least you have a marriage. (laughs) John's getting kicked out of school. At least Sarah is an A student. But one of the things we do sometimes in the face of very difficult conversations is we try to make things better. If I share something with you that's very difficult, I'd rather you say, I don't even know what to say right now, I'm just so glad you told me. Because the truth is, rarely can a response make something better. What makes something better is connection. Wow. And some of you, uh, thank you, Brene Brown, some of you will go, uh, what? But isn't this what Jesus did? Didn't he connect with us? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And now we have a high priest who can empathize with us in every way because he walked this earth and he ever lives to intercede for us. Empathy, when you're judgmental, you're not connecting with people. And so the Pharisees standing by himself prayed, God, I thank you that. Now, if it just paused there, you might say that your love reaches the heavens, that your faithfulness is to the skies, that your righteousness is like the mighty mountains. You, you might say, thank you for your loving kindness is better than life. Like there's so many things that he could have thanked God for, but look how he prays. I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, tax collectors and drummers, right? Right, oh, sorry, Billy. Um, you know, like, like he's got, he, he's not praying to God, is he? You know, he, he's, uh, he's like my friend who used to say, a drop of alcohol has never touched my lips. And he, he was, it was like he was going, I'm so much better than all of you drinkers. And here's Pastor Doug's response. I wish you'd just go get drunk. And everybody like, what did you say to him? Yeah, because then your darn self-righteousness would be gone, right? I, I think that's just as damning as drunkenness, I, or worse. I, this is what uh, C.S. Lewis is talking about here. He, he, it's kind of fascinating what he says. He says, if anyone thinks that Christians regard unchastity right? That's unfaithfulness, not being chaste, as the supreme vice, he's quite wrong. The sins of the flesh are bad, but they are the least bad of all sins. 
all the worst pleasures are purely spiritual. The pleasure of putting others in the wrong. <laughs> How many like to be right? <clears throat> the, of bossing and patronizing and spoil sporting. The spoil sport, the one who ruins the game, rains on everybody's parade. Of backbiting, the pleasure of power, of hatred. Now, now look, look at this. He says, for there are two things inside of me competing with the human self, which I must try to become. So a lot of times we say, well, the battle is between kind of the old nature or the new nature, or sometimes we call it the flesh and the spirit. But Lewis divides the old nature into two. And he says, one, part of the old nature I like to call my animal self. And then I have the diabolical self. And they're at war with him becoming into the image of Christ. And he says that the diabolical self is the worst of the two. That is why a cold, self-righteous prig who goes regularly to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. I like how he ends it. But of course, it's better to be neither. <laughs> and we're all going, yeah, it is better, right? Because either one of those. But do you see what he's saying? There's something inside of us that although we might not give in to our animal nature, we can go the other way and become just as damned. I uh, read 41 key signs of pride. After about 31, I was depressed. So I'm just going to give you about five because I think it's always good to, to kind of let the light shine down in our hearts. He says, uh, do, it's a woman who wrote this. She said, do you look down on those who are less educated less affluent, less refined, less successful than yourself? Do you think of yourself as more spiritual than your mate, others in your church? Do you have a judgmental spirit towards those who don't make the same lifestyle choices as you? Dress standards, how you school your kids, entertainment standards? Are you quick to find fault with others and to verbalize those thoughts to others? And do you have a sharp and critical tongue? And it goes on. But this is all, I, I believe, out of when I start justifying myself by my performance, what happens? Somebody who's not doing as well as me, what do I do? I don't empathize, right? I, I'm critical of them. And it doesn't matter who they are. And now he starts getting into some of the behaviors that he does. I fast twice a week. I give a tithe to all that I get. I mean, I think people would like this guy, right? He's, he's generous, right? I think people would like to be around them. And he's defining himself by what he does. Now, it's interesting, in Isaiah, you have the kind of fast that God wants. Not um, intermittent fasting. You get no spiritual points for that, you guys. If you're into that intermittent fasting, no spiritual points. But he says, is this the kind of fast I chose? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry? To bring homeless and poor into your house? When you see naked, to cover him. Not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing spring up speedily, and your righteousness shall go before you. You know, when I first read this, I thought, well, this guy couldn't be this way. Because, of course, this is the biblical way. But, but then I thought, wait a minute, no. This guy could have had a, a, a place in his house for people who are homeless. 
He could, have, he could have been the best at this. And maybe basing his righteousness on that too. Do you see that? That Pharisee inside of us can do all kinds of good things. Then we use those to prove to the world that we are somebody. And it's just as, um, it's just as insidious. Or how about this? Have you ever sinned? Uh, Mark prayed about this last night. Have you ever sinned and then until you do certain penance and you prescribe what it is, right? I got to read more of the Bible. I have to do some kind of fasting. I have to, you know, whatever it is. You can't feel good about yourself until you do your penance. What's that? What is that? That's not the gospel. It's not the gospel at all. It's saying, Lord, I don't accept me until I punish myself for a little bit, right? What are you doing? You're being a Pharisee. He goes, but the tax collector stayed off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So this guy is like broken, beating his chest. It wasn't a sign of like being a, a like, you know, a gorilla, it was a sign of like utter abasement, right? Lord, I'm, I'm broken. And what's interesting there is I'm not satisfied with the standard translation on this. Oh God, be merciful to me for I am a sinner. The word merciful is used uh, twice this way in the Bible. And in Hebrews, they don't translate it merciful. It's, they translate it propitiation. Not a word that you typically use in your everyday language, propitiation. But propitiation means to atone for, to pay back, right? It's, it's to cover sin. And, and this person is saying, Lord, here I am in the temple where the animals are being sacrificed. And once a year, the blood is sprinkled all over the Holy of Holies. He's saying, Lord, atone for my sins. Pay for my sins. Cover my sins. Not, I don't think mercy does justice to that. He's like, Lord, I can't pay for my sins. You, please pay for my sins. And then they translated a sinner, but here's the problem. I'm a sinner. So is everybody else. I'm, not as, I'm just as bad as everybody else. Lord, have mercy on me and them too because we're all sinners. But this guy isn't saying it. You know what he's saying? Whoops. He's saying, have merciful, be merciful to me, the sinner. The sinner. He's not thinking about anybody else. Face to the ground. I am better than no one here. I am the sinner. It's so easy sometimes when you sin and you feel bad, you're like, well, everybody else is just as bad as me, so God, you know, forgive them and me too. I think repentance is, God, I am the chief of sinners. Paul, writing the New Testament, includes this. This is a faithful saying worthy of acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the chief, the top dog. The one. Now, is he writing and everybody's supposed to have this trustworthy saying that Paul is the worst sinner? No, I don't think so. I think he wants all of us to be somebody who says, I, I'm the chief of sinners. 
what would that do to you? Like, here's how the world works. When you know you're the chief of sinners, how do you feel about yourself? You feel like an like a ink spot on the carpet, right? You're a dirt bag. But Paul is writing the New Testament. Like, he's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's inspired. These words are God-breathed. How could somebody write the New Testament and feel like an ink spot on the carpet, right? No, this... Paul somehow is able to have the humility to say, I'm the chief of sinners, and yet have the confidence to write the New Testament. And I think that's what God wants for all of us. Luther said this, when I look at myself, I don't see how I can be saved. But when I look at Christ, I don't see how I can be lost. Isn't that the truth? So we go, Lord, I look at myself. I'm the sinner. Not just the but I, I'm the best, I think. I'm the, I'm the, the first. I'm the chief. I'm, I, I am the sinner. And here's the, the marvelous thing. He says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. You know what's fascinating? We hear nothing about any change in this guy's life. We don't hear and he stopped being a tax collector. Or like Zacchaeus, if I've taken from so many people, I'll repay so many fold, right? No, we hear nothing but a broken man confessing his sins to God. And who goes out justified? Who goes out righteous before God? The broken man, the one who has need. And here's the reality. You know, God can help us stop certain sins one or another but we're always going to be sinners. Anybody who's lived the Christian life long enough and is honest with themselves and stops the self-justification realizes that you're always going to be a sinner. That until this body drops off you, you're going to sin. And Jesus knows that. And anybody who knows you well knows it too, right? And the Lord, so all of us are just like this guy, making no promises, just saying, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. And we walk out of here justified. And then he says, for everybody who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Like this is, this is what keeps people out of the kingdom, pride. And, and can I say this, that if you're somebody who likes to share the gospel with other people, people can sense when you look down on them, Right? I remember this guy saying he used to go to his bank and he felt like they were all fools. And he said, I would go and I'd think, these people are so slow, so ignorant. And he said, I thought that they didn't get, knew what I was thinking. He said, but my face express, facial expressions betrayed it. And if you're trying to tell somebody about Jesus, but you feel better than them, you don't know that you're the chief of sinners, deeply loved, it'll come out. People will see it. But when you and I know that we're no better than anybody else, but we've been touched by the grace of God, then, then your communication may not be received by some, but they'll have an understanding that you're justified by grace through faith, not by works, so nobody can boast. Will you pray with me? Lord, the reality is, is we'd like to see your kingdom come and more people be drawn unto you. We'd love to see a community where 
uh, where your love is seen and taught and caught and continue, Jesus, your way in us, your spirit in us. Just admit to God that you are the chief, the, the, the top dog of sinners. And hear him say again, deeply loved, forgiven, righteous, holy. Jesus, you became sin so we might be your righteousness, the righteousness of God. And for that, we say thank you. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Community of Hope, go to www.cohchurch.com. God bless you today.